classroom discourse, which is our Lord's exit strategy. He would literally be dead within several hours, but he gave to us his own table talks, his own table talks, which we have in the upper room. We'll see that table at the book of 1 Corinthians at chapter 10 at verse 21, where one of the six names for the communion service is, quote, the Lord's table, close quote, at 1 Corinthians 10.21. Now, there is so much theology involved in the communion service that I'm going to take the passages as they appear. Therefore, it will be exegetical, but I'm going to have to dump 12 theological terms next to that to package the information. So this morning, we're going to be expositional and theological. We're going to be verse by verse as well as topics. And with the the 12 topics that we're going to be looking at, uh, we're not going to have any subpoints, so I won't get you too lost in all the detail. But the significance of the Lord's Supper is unbelievably important, and hopefully I will surface some of these things in the message for this morning. Now, you might remember as I make my way out of this church, I'm following the Lord Jesus pattern in the upper room as he made his way out of the earth. Uh, his more dramatic than mine. I'm retiring. He was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and glorified. But having said that, there were several key themes that he gave to his disciples that the day he died He waited this long to lay on these theological bombshells. And then he basically said to himself, now look, you're going to have this guy named the Apostle Paul. You're going to have 21 more epistles. So the things that I give to you in germinal seed form in the upper room will be expanded upon in 21 epistles as the decades unfold. And if you'll remember in our first message, we had two things, humility and holiness. You must understand that if you want to be successful in your Christian life, you better have humility and holiness. Then last week in our second message, we learned about two great things, glory and love. So you better be concerned about glorifying God in your body, and you be better concerned about loving one another, even as Christ has loved you. Now today, today in our third message of seven, we're going to be looking at two more things, two more things And they're all mega important. They're all uber important. They are just unbelievably significant. And the two for today will be, number one, the communion service. And number two, the theological concept of the covenant, the berit, the diatheke in the Hebrew and the Greek languages. These are words that are unbelievably powerful, unbelievably powerful to say the least. Now, as we approach the upper room, which is basically John chapter 13 through chapter 17, we are shocked. We are dumbfounded because in all the details that the Apostle John gave us in the upper room, he forgot to give us the communion service. He forgot to give us the Lord's Supper. Well, he did forget. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already recorded it. So I go over it again. But there are certain things like that are kind of surprising. For example, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, you'll read that word disciple, that word disciple, over 200 times, 
When you read the 21 epistles, you read the disciple, zero. Isn't that amazing? In the first five books of the Bible, disciple is a common word over 200 times. And in all 21 epistles, not even once. If you are fond of the red letter edition of the Bible, think of the word grace. That wonderful word grace. My granddaughter has that as a middle name, grace. How many times out of the lips of Jesus do you think he used the word grace? In all of Matthew, and all of Mark, and all of Luke, and all of John. And the answer is zero. Isn't that surprising? Isn't that a shock? But alas, that's how it is. So at John chapter 13 through 17, which is highly detailed, I would have expected a long discourse on the communion service. But alas, it's not there. Matthew has it. Mark has it. Luke has it. But then Jesus did something that was very, very unusual. And listen closely, please. After Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle, Galatians chapter 1 at verses 17 and 18 says that Paul spent three years in Arabia being taught by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, our Savior knew that Paul the Apostle was going to be such a great spokesperson for God that Jesus said to Paul, I know you missed the four Gospels. You weren't even saved then. But you need to know what was happening during those years that I was ministering. So the Apostle Paul got private teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ over a three-year period as found at Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And as a new convert, uh, Paul was able to understand some grand themes of theology Now, one of them, we know for sure that Jesus taught Paul was the communion service. Obviously, Paul wasn't in the upper room. He wasn't one of the original 11. So Jesus said, you know, Paul, you have to get in the loop. So I'm going to tell you exactly what happened that night. And then later on, when you write 1 Corinthians at chapters 10 and 11, you be sure you write down accurately everything I'm telling you. So we have a tremendous insight into Jesus, who taught Paul the Apostle, who is now teaching us. Amazing, remarkable. So what we want to do is look at this particular paragraph of Scripture. A few verses at 1 Corinthians 10, many, many more at 1 Corinthians 11. But when we get done, we're going to be looking at 12 major themes a whole dozen of themes that better be important to you. Now, I'm not going to ask you to become authority on all 12. The concept is communion and covenants. Those are the big things that our Lord taught. But to understand communion, it needs about a, a dozen subpoints just to follow the text as it is written without becoming excessively or overly theological. So let's, let's go on a little field trip into Eucharistic theology. As we look at the theology of the Eucharist uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just a few verses, and chapter 11, a whole bunch of verses. So number one on our list of 12, number one on the list of 12 is the simple word you've heard all your life, communion. 
communion. And you say, well, that's stating the obvious. The communion service is communion. Yes, but it's only communion because of the King James Bible, which I most certainly love. But to start with the word communion, I'm at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. And here the Bible says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless? My New American Standard says, A sharing. In the King James, it's better. It's communion. Is it not communion in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing, or in the King James, communion in the body of Christ? Verse 17, since there was one bread and we are all of one body, we all partake, same word communion, of one bread. So what my English version translates as sharing, sharing, partake, in the Greek Bible, as well as the King James Bible, it's the word communion. So verse number 16, we have communion in his blood, we have communion in his body. That's why it's a communion service. And communion has the idea of fellowship, and fellowship can be described as two fellows in one ship. You got to get along, you have things in common. So the communion service, by definition, involves all of us. It involves all of us. Now, you may take communion privately all by yourself. Probably not, but you might do that. But communion, by definition, says we want other people involved. It might be small, like a home Bible study or a flock group. It might be corporate, as we do here on the first Sunday of every month. But that's the idea. Communion is a fellowship, a contribution, a partaking, a partnership, a companionship. And those are the English translations for the Greek word under study. Now, we use the word you know, communion as in communion service, and that's a very, very good word, and the King James Bible attests to that. But the communion service is also called the Lord's Table, also in this chapter. It's called in the book of Acts, breaking of bread. In the Greek text, the verb is eucharistao, which means I give thanks. And the Lord Jesus gave thanks, and then he distributed the elements. So Eucharistic comes from the Greek word Eucharistao, which means I give thanks because Jesus orally gave thanks before he um, broke the bread. And then the sixth and final is called a love feast or an agape feast from the book of Jude. So we're talking about communion, which is the Lord's Supper, which is the Lord's table, which is a breaking of bread, which is an agape feast, which is a Eucharistic celebration. So you have these six terms, six terms to describe what we do that first Sunday of every month. One down, 11 to go. The next word is redemption, redemption. And I'm at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Then I'll scoot to chapter 11 as well. But again, just to read the Bible at 1 Corinthians 10, 16, under the concept of redemption. That's your key word, redemption. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in, here it is, the blood of Christ. Now to scoot to the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then verse 27, verse 27 of chapter 11, concludes with the words, The blood of the Lord. Very unusual, the blood of the Lord. So three times we have the blood of Christ, we have the blood of the Lord, 
and we have my blood. And if you know anything, blood symbolizes redemption, in whom we have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. You were redeemed from the emptiness of your old life, not by gold and silver, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. So when you see the word blood in a Eucharistic passage like this, the idea is redemption. God looked at you as a slave at the agora, at the marketplace of sin, and someone had to buy you back from sin in order to give you a new master, a new Lord, a new freedom. And Jesus said, I am that person, and my blood is the payment. And it's not made to Satan, it's made to God, because you are that precious in my sight. I'm going to shed my blood and buy you to myself. That's one of the aspects of the wonderful doctrine of redemption. So when you come to the Lord's table, it's communion. It's redemption. But there's 10 more, so let's go to number three. Number three, which is the word unification. Unification. I'm at chapter 10 at verse 17. Once again, it's in the communion setting. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Here's the Bible. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, where we all partake of one bread. You kind of get the impression that the word one is the key word in that verse, since you see it three times. And the word one gives us that idea of unification. <clears throat> I love it in two passages, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, in you all, and through all of you. You get one seven times in Ephesians 4, 4, 5, and 6. Then you scoot to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, where Jesus prays in his upper room that the children of faith might be one even as the Trinity is one. So the point is simply this. There's unity when we all partake together. That's why my custom, my custom, is that we retain the elements until all have been served and then partake together. It probably wasn't that way in the original upper room. Many churches, you take the juice and put it right back in the tray so everybody drinks at a different time. We're small enough that we can hold the elements together and partake together. That's a custom of the Woodhaven Bible Church. That's not obeying some divine theology of how to hold the cup. But the point is simply this. When we break bread together, we are unified. We share, we partake, we have fellowship, and how wonderful that is. Communion, redemption, unification. Number four, number four would be the word instruction, instruction. Chapter 11, verse 17. Chapter 11, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for better but for worse. Now, verse 23, as I told you about the Galatian chapter 1 experience, verse 23. For I, 
that is, Paul the Apostle, received from the Lord. Well, when did that happen? When did the Apostle Paul receive from the Lord that which is also going to deliver to you right now at 1 Corinthians 11? The answer is those three years in Arabia where Jesus gave private discipleship to the Apostle Paul. So the point simply at verse number 23 is, For I received from the Lord, in parentheses, in the Arabian desert, that which I'm going to deliver to you right now, because the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, dot, dot, dot. But the point is simply this. There is instruction, instruction in the communion service. That's what I'm doing right now. Hopefully, by the time I get through all 12, you'll know a little bit more about the communion service than when you walked in. If that's true, that is very, very good. Because I'm just taking the Bible as it is written and trying to surface and highlight grand theological terms that are found in our English Bible. So Paul basically says, I make no apology for being didactic, being a teacher, being an instructor, you need to know your God. You need to know your God. And one way you get to know him is by the nuances, the nuances of the communion service. Now, Paul was an instructor. He was a teacher. And he did those things very, very well. It sometimes says, when a teacher teaches what he knows, nothing is gained because he already knows it. But when a learner listens and learns things, then a lot is gained. So again, can I be the guy who causes you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Can I be the guy that causes you to increase in the knowledge of God? Lord Jesus Christ, knowledge of God, increasing in both. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. You know whom you have believed, and you know he's able to commit that which you've given to him against that day. Uh, This is eternal life that you might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom was sent in John 17, 3. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom and the rich man in his riches and the strong man in his strength. No, no, no. You're going to boast in anything. Boast in this, that you know and understand me at Jeremiah 9 and 22 to 24. We're not egotistical and braggadocious, but we want to know God. And one way we can do that is through instruction from the word specifically for this morning in the Eucharistic service. Now we come to number five on our list, number five on our list. And whenever I come to this, it breaks my heart. The key word is the word estimation, the word estimation. That's the the noun for the verb esteem. Are you esteemed highly in love, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or are you esteemed as a dirty, rotten scoundrel? So you know the word esteemed as a verb. You know the word estimation as a noun. But let me tell you the story behind verse 22 and behind verse 22. 33. Don't look at your Bible. Listen to me. The Corinthian church was very, very weak theologically. It was extremely carnal, extremely immoral, both physically and doctrinally and every way you want to be. 
And what happened is this, and this is what breaks my heart. There were slaves in the first century, literal slaves in the first century, and a lot of them were in major cities like Corinth. And because the gospel always appeals to the down and outers more than the upper crust, the church was full of slaves, literal slaves. And slaves sometimes only had one good meal a week. One good meal a week. And that was at their local church. It was the Lord's Supper. It was the agape feast. And because they were poor, because they were slaves, all they could bring is barley bread. All they could bring were dinner rolls. That's all they could bring. They were slaves. And some of these slimeball Christian Corinthians, they said, the love feast starts at 7. Let's show up at 6. And we'll eat our own steaks. We'll eat our own roast beef. We'll eat our own feast. And then, <laughs> then, then when the slaves show up at 7, guess what? There's nothing for them. Their hopeful one good meal a week did not occur. Can you believe a Christian would treat another Christian that way? But that is exactly what's happening. Verse 22, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-two. the category is estimation. I just taught you the historical background, now the Bible. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or you, here it is, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? How dare you call yourself a Christian and shame those who have nothing? You gluttonous pigs. You don't want to be in fellowship with a slave? Is barley bread not good enough for you? And you would actually... Cause the Lord's table to be an abomination by the way you behaved yourself. Verse 33, dropping down to verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, hey, wait for one another. Don't you dare, rich people, show up an hour early. Have the great big love feast and then give the slaves the leftover because they obeyed the time slot. You people make me sick. That's why Paul says, I praise you not. You need instruction out of the word of God. Okay, I'm back to normal. Five down, seven to go. Communion, redemption, unification, instruction, estimation. Now number six, number six, appreciation. Number six, appreciation. And I'm at verse uh, number uh, 24 of 1 Corinthians 11. Here's the appreciation. And when Jesus had given thanks, and this is the Greek word, eucharisteo, when Jesus had demonstrated appreciation and gratefulness and thankfulness, he broke the bread and said, this is my body. But I want to camp on the verb, Jesus himself gave thanks. Jesus himself was the appreciative and grateful for the food that he was about to eat and the theology that he could encrust around it. 
because Eucharistic theology, that is theology of the communion table, is very, very important. And Jesus was just so appreciative of the fact that he could teach divine truth through something as easy to understand as a meal. Now, the word thanks in its most elementary root is the prefix for good and the noun for grace. In other words, if you have received good grace, you are to be thankful. In other words, it's inconceivable that you would receive grace and not be thankful, because that's what the word means. Thankfulness means I have received good grace. I got to say something. I have to do something. And that's the idea here. Once you realize your salvation, you should be the most thankful person on planet Earth. Look to the rock from whence you were dug and the pit from whence you were hewn. You better remember that. You better remember that. And a good way to do that is at the Lord's table, at the Lord's Supper. And then be like Jesus at verse number 24 and give thanks that you're saved. Give thanks that you're born again. Give thanks that you've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that you might be holy and blameless before him in love. God does not elect and select you for you to be a bum. He selects you to be holy and blameless before him in love. But more can be said, but let's go on our list because we are now down to number seven. We are now down to number seven, and this is a biggie. Number seven is a biggie, and it's the word substitution. Substitution. Verse number 24. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, in my English translation, which is for you. Which is for you. My body is for you. That is substitution. My Hebrew teacher in seminary had his first doctorate in Greek. And then he went to Harvard and picked up another doctorate in Hebrew. But I was looking at his doctoral dissertation in the library. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on Antti and Huper, which means nothing to you. But Antti is the Greek word for in place of or a substitute. And the word Huper means in behalf of, in benefit of. So without being too detailed, Jesus Christ died in behalf of you, and he died in place of you. Again, just take that by faith. Jesus died in behalf of you, that is, for your benefit. And secondly, he died in place of you as a substitute. Here at verse number 11, we see it so clearly. This is my sacrificial body, which is in place for you. I'm going to die so you don't have to. You are going to get the benefits of my death. I get death. You get salvation. That's God's vocabulary. That's God's glossary. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we study the Bible. It is deep and wide. It is rich and pure gold. And here Jesus says at verse number 24, I'm dying the just in place of the unjust in order that I might bring you to God. At 1 Peter 3.18, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered 
unto, but to minister and to give his life in place of yours. Matthew twenty twenty eight. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life in place of you. Same verse, different reference. Matthew twenty twenty eight equals Mark ten forty five. You get the impression that someone is dying in your place. That's why theologians who are orthodox love penal substitution. A penalty has been paid, but not by me. Liberals hate that doctrine. Evangelical, fundamental Protestants love it. Penal substitution. Here is a little bit of that. So we've gone through seven. We are now at number eight. We are now at number eight. And it's the word commemoration, commemoration, verse numbers 24 and 25, commemoration, number eight on our list of 12. Here the Bible says at the end of verse number 24, do this in remembrance of me. The end of verse number 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, it's a memorial service then. In my theology, yes, it is. If you're Roman Catholic, the theology is transubstantiation. That is, the substance of bread and juice is transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. Boo, his, no. If you are Lutheran, you believe in consubstantiation. Con, the Latin word, with. So the substance of the cracker and the substance of the juice, Jesus is over, under, around, and through, but it stays a cracker and it stays juice. It's consubstantiation. So the Catholics look at it one way. The Lutherans look at it another way. Our beloved Presbyterian friends, they have what we call the spiritual presence of Christ. That is, when you take communion... Christ is spiritually present in the elements and in your life quite differently than at any other time. So I'm married to Joyce when I'm having a root canal, and I'm married to Joyce when we're cuddling on the couch. But, but her presence is different on the couch than me thinking about her getting a root canal. And if you are a Baptist or in the Bible church movement, Nine times out of ten, you believe in the memorial interpretation. It commemorates. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and a whole bunch of other things. So the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Baptists, we all have some views. Of course, only one of them is right unless there's a, a little bit of overlap. But just so we're on the same page, I like the way I do it. I like the way we do it. No complaints after 33 years, so I'm going to keep doing it that way. So I'm in the memorial. I am in the commemoration camp very, very closely, very, very tightly. Now, number nine on our list of 12, number nine on our list of 12, and this is a biggie, but due to time, I'm not going to be able to develop it in a degree. But number uh, nine on our list of 12 would be the word ratification. Ratification. Let me read the verse. I'm at verse number 25 of chapter 11. In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, 
This cup is, here it is, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, a couple big, big things in the middle of verse number 25 is the expression new covenant. My friend, I cannot stress to you how important the new covenant is. It's a new covenant in Jesus' blood, and the ratification of that is, as often as you do this, you're going to be remembering me. And you'll have to take this by faith, but in the Bible, significant covenants are always given a picture and a symbol so you won't miss it. So when covenants are made, like the new covenant, which we have at verse number 25, when a new covenant is made, or any covenant that's significant is made, it has to have some kind of symbol, some kind of token, something external so everybody can be on board. Give me, or let me share clear illustrations. God made a covenant to Noah, and the Noahic covenant is symbolized with rainbows. So whenever you see a rainbow, you're to say God will never give a global flood ever again. With Abraham, Abraham, especially Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant has the uh, circumcision as its sign or its symbol. Because the seed that is produced from circumcision symbolizes the seed of the Abrahamic covenant. Then Moses had a covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and God said the Sabbath day is the symbol for the Mosaic Covenant. Now, here we go, now we have a new covenant in his blood. What in God's green earth, what kind of symbol can we have that symbolizes this magnificent new covenant, which is Trinitarian with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all participating in the salvation that's first promised in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. And that, of course, is this. The table, the communion table. That's how we illustrate the new covenant. We break bread together, and when that happens, we are telling everybody we believe in the new covenant. We believe in blood atonement. We believe that the wages of sin is death. We believe that one died for us, the just for the unjust. And can you just make it a little bit simpler? Okay, thimble size, juice, fingernail size cracker. That's what the covenant ratification symbol is the lord's supper ratifies symbolizes the new covenant let us continue at number 10 at number 10 is the word proclamation verse number 26 is the word proclamation number 10 on our list for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you here it is proclaim the lord's death you proclaim the lord's death you didn't know that did you I get to proclaim, I get to teach publicly. But the Greek word that's used here is now used to mean whenever you and I silently take the juice and the bread, we are literally, in God's eyes, preaching. We are proclaiming a particular truth, that, of course, being the new covenant. A lot of you maybe were raised on the wordless book, And the first page was black because of sin. And the second page was red because of Jesus' blood. And the third page was white because of holiness. And the fourth page was green for a productive life. And the last page was gold because you're going to heaven when you die. And and it's, it's a wordless book. 
But man, oh man, did it ever teach a lot. By analogy, the communion service is wordless. But boy, oh boy, does it teach a lot. That's what I'm trying to teach you today. All these wonderful aspects of the communion service that our Lord gave to his church hours before he died. But we must continue with number 11, number 11 on our list of 12, and it's the word anticipation, anticipation. Verse number 26, at the end of verse number 26, but the Bible says as follows, reading the whole verse, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Here it is, until he comes, until he comes. That's anticipation. That's anticipatory. It's like uh, Carly Simon singing the Heinz ketchup commercial about 15 years ago. Anticipation as the ketchup goes out of the bottle onto the burger. Anticipatory. The pre-trib rapture of the church, which I unbelievably believe in strongly, is my anticipation. My anticipation until he comes. You might anticipate a next text. You might anticipate the mailman tomorrow morning. You might anticipate that IRS refund. You might anticipate that first kiss or getting married. You might anticipate the first kiss of a Hallmark movie at Christmas or Valentine's Day. My anticipation is the blessed hope, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That's what I'm anticipating And every time I break bread, I get to be reminded of that. And you too. And you too. And then number 12 on our list of 12, number 12 on our list of 12 would be the word examination. Examination. I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11 at verse number 28. And the Bible says this, but let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29 ends, if he does not judge, judge the body of Christ correctly. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Examination found at verse number 28 with that word. Verse 29, the word judge. Verse 31, the word judge. So will you judge your life? Will you examine your life? Because this is the time to do it. The philosophers say, The unexamined life is not worth living. The Bible says, you know, that philosopher was pretty right. The unexamined life is not worth living. So you need to examine yourself, verse 28. You need to judge yourself, verse 31, verse 29. And one way to do that is at the communion table. It's built right in because God knows how busy you are. You think you're busy in 2017? They were busy in Martin Luther's age. They were busy in Athanasius' age. You're always busy if you're a born-again believer. But God slams on the brakes in the Bible and says, stop, look, and listen. And the communion table allows us to do just that. So to review, did you learn anything today about the communion service? Let me remind you in a dozen ways. Communion, redemption, unification. Instruction, estimation, appreciation. Substitution, commemoration, ratification, proclamation, anticipation, examination. My homiletics profs at Dallas would hate this sermon, but I think you need to hear it. 
because our Lord delivered a similar theme the very day he died. Now to conclude. As you know, when I read the Bible, I oftentimes tell you about things in living your Christian life. It's inwardly, upwardly, or outwardly. It doesn't matter where you start, but there's always those three. Live your life inwardly, upwardly, outwardly. Just guess where I'm going with this. Just guess where I'm going with this. What does the communion service do? It says, Greg, live your Christian life inwardly. Yikes. I have to examine myself. I have to judge myself. Nobody can do that but I. So I'm living my Christian life internally. Then I'm living my life externally. By definition, communion means more than just I. It's in context. It's in community. It's in a body. It's in a flock. It's in a congregation. How wonderful it is that we can have communion together. One body, one bread, one cup, one loaf, one faith. Inwardly, outwardly, and upwardly, upwardly. Wow, unbelievable. Will you remember me? Will you remember me? Will you remember the new covenant in my blood? Will you remember that I died for your sin? Boy, that's really God-focused. That is really heaven-focused. So, when we break bread together, when we have communion together, you can say, yeah, the Christian life is in and out and up. And God taught all three things in one little paragraph of Scripture. Let us pray. Father, once again, we thank you for the Upper Room Discourse. But more importantly, we want to thank you for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for committing your faithfulness in writing. We call that the Bible. And we certainly do not worship it. But we thank you for a written revelation of yourself that can be expounded on uh, in classrooms, in auditoriums, in people's basements and family rooms and kitchen tables and bedsides and wherever the word of God might go, might it be glorified. And we thank you for being the God of the communion service. Amen.